Hi everyone, my name is Arman Childers and this is Academics Write, a podcast about academic writing and publishing. Today I have the great honor of hosting Elizabeth Chin. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi, it's good to be here. It's wonderful to have you. I mean, I know a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of people already know you, but for those of us who don't, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. So um, I'm an anthropologist, and currently uh, I'm editor-in-chief of the journal American Anthropologist. Um, I work, I've been working in a design school since 2011, so, you know, I, I sort of have some unusual, I guess, um, experiences related to that, maybe not the normal sort of academic setting. Um, and I, you know, I guess I come from a family of writers, so, um, I like to joke that you don't really grow up in my family until you have your first book on the shelf. <laughs> nice. Um, and I mean, I just want to also like let the listeners know how this conversation has started. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in response to one of the, t- one of your tweets, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which was also in response to a question posted by Laura Portwood Sacer, and you talked about how you basically righted your relationship with your dissertation, which wasn't as easy when you turned it into a book. Mm-hmm. And this is mm-hmm. this was one of the yeah. This is how I got in touch with you, and you kindly agreed to uh, have this conversation with me. And I wanted to listen a bit more about this, like. Yeah. At one on one hand, about the dissertation and how, and the difficult relationship. And I'm talk. I mean, I was very interested in it because I I recently finished my PhD and I still have a very uneasy relationship with my dissertation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would love to hear more about your experience, maybe first, and then we can talk about the turning the dissertation into book. Yes. Well. Um... You know, I I think graduate school in general for a lot of us is, um, you know, faking it until you make it. (laughs) And uh, although, again, I I come from a background, you know, my my father is a writer and my stepfather was a journalist and my mother is a very gifted writer. Um, I don't come from a family that that, you know, was full of college professors. And so that, that was, um, you know, not a world that I necessarily knew. And so, um, you know, I just made up a lot of rules for myself (laughs) in grad school. Uh, And, and the same with the dissertation, you know, I didn't get really much guidance from Mm -hmm. my committee about what it was supposed to look like or or anything. Um, And I I think that was also complicated in in sort of good ways by the fact that I got a tenure track job before I finished my dissertation. And so I was working full time and writing the dissertation. Mm -hmm. And that took three years um, because it was hard to do all of that at once. So, you know, I, and I'm fully convinced that one person on my committee never actually read the dissertation at all. <laughs> 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 and, 
and and so there was this weird way in which when I was done you know and I think it always feels like a letdown just because it's, it's just sort of a non-event in some ways when you deposit and then you're done and then you're like now what I mean my now what was oh I had a job so that was awesome hmm. um but it was you know that routine was already established and you know so uh, it was like, oh, now I have to turn it into a book, but which I also didn't know how to do. Um, but I definitely, I mean, one of the ways I describe my dissertation was that it was my imitation of a smart person. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, with the book, I was able to leave that piece of it behind. And so, um, you know, I was freed up, I think, from having to please my committee, right? And mm -hmm. I was really lucky that I had been approached by an editor um, at um, University of Minnesota Press. So I knew there was interest and um, that w was a huge support or, you know, almost, almost, I mean, it felt like a responsibility at, you know, also, but it, it, I didn't feel like I was going to have to, you know, roam the halls with my proposal in hand going like, could you please read this, you know, <laughs> like, uh, and, and that, that was a real, you know, that gave me a certain kind of, I think, um, confidence. And, you know, in, in meeting and talking to the editor, I really felt like, you know, she was interested in what I had to say. And so that I didn't have to kind of manufacture some kind of persona to do hmm. that. And that let me really, you know, think of the book as its own thing. And, you know, I, I, I have not gone back to read the dissertation. It's like, eh. um, <laughs> but my memory is that I really pretty much dumped 60% of it mm -hmm. and, and just um, sat down to write the book I wanted to write from that material the, of my field work and mm -hmm. research. And that was um you know hard but a much more satisfying process mm -hmm. yeah so you basically i mean it it sounds like to me that you didn't turn the dissertation into a book but you wrote a book from in in many scripts. ways i mean there are definite pieces of it that mm -hmm. that um were there and then there were definite pieces of it that i just ejected you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and was like i don't know what i was thinking there like what was i trying to do you know <laughs> <sighs> you know let's let's not um but but it it was yeah i think it 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 felt much more you know much less like i was faking something and much more mm -hmm. like I was writing something that I wanted to write. And that sounds very uh, 
hopeful for for me yeah, at least and for, absolutely. I'm sure for others yeah. who are listening. Yeah, and it's you know, it's um, you know, there's still all the anxiety of having a an audience and and people judging you and mm-hmm. you know, after the book came out, a senior scholar, you know, went through the whole thing and sent me a detailed email about every error I had made. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, but, you know, I guess for me, writing has always been very personal and mm-hmm. um, just as something that mostly I enjoy, <laughs> you know, and it, <laughs> it, it just, it's just something I do. Um, and you know, I was able to kind of get my flow back. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was really, you know, crucial, because it's it's really awful to sort of feel again, like you're doing some weird performance as you're writing, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. that, that, yeah, that's not a good feeling. (laughs) (laughs) And I bring that to, you know, the the advice that I that I give to you know, people who submit stuff to the journal, because, you know, very often they're pulling stuff from their dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're newer scholars, or it might be their first big publication, and there's not a lot of teaching, you know, it's one reason I have the Twitter is to try to at least have this platform where I can be as transparent as possible and mm-hmm. make little comments and, um you know, again, try to demystify the process because there is a lot of, I don't, you know, I don't think there's some big um, uh, conspiracy, but there is a lot of detail knowledge that it's like, you don't know it unless you know it. (laughs) (laughs) And there's not a lot of um, direct kind of teaching or, you know, that people get and so you know they're like what do you mean the response letter what is that (laughs) you know (laughs) what do you mean the what do you you know and um yeah it's i mean a lot of it's not that complicated it's just you don't know what you don't know Mm -hmm. and you know um in a way there's no reason for people not to have access to this information before they learn it the hard way you know Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy reading your editorials to American Anthropologist, because, I mean, mm-hmm. you are trying to teach, I mean, teach the publics reading American Anthropologists about the publishing process, right? Yeah, I think with with the, the editorial essays, I've really focused in the last few, especially on... Um, Right, these these kinds of things about okay, what does it mean if you get an R and R, you know, a, a revise and resubmit, and you know, and I I wrote that one in in part because um, well, number one, revise and resubmit is our most common decision, and so really what you should expect when you submit is that you likely will get a revise and resubmit, <laughs> like. I've never seen except on first draft. It's just not a thing, (laughs) 
you know? I mean, it would be also surprising that an yeah. article written that hasn't that doesn't have any space for improvement, right? Exactly. <laughs> And, and so it's helpful to think of it as a kind of conversation that's happening and it's asynchronous and it takes a long time because it goes out to reviewers, but they're not coming back, you know, armed with machetes and, you know, trying to cut you down. It's much more um, it, at, in its best version, which, which we really try to support. It's like, hey, did you think about this? Or, you know, whoa, did you think about that? Or you know um and you know we all get in our heads and we're in our stuff and so we forget what it might look like from the outside and um there's also again journal specific things that that sometimes people aren't quite you know paying enough attention to and then that's you know all sort of intensified when you're trying to pull out a piece of your dissertation i think hmm. because um, if it's your first sort of big journal article and or particularly if it's from your dissertation, there's such a tendency to want to kind of basically like shrink the dissertation into 18 pages and you just can't mm -hmm. do that. <laughs> it doesn't work. You know, it doesn't mm -hmm. scale that way. And so um, it's very hard because you're so close to the work to really finely slice out a piece of it that can stand on its own that still um, has integrity to what the project is. And it's mm -hmm. really hard as the author to even sometimes see what that is because you feel like everything is connected to everything. Hmm. And that's where peer reviewers can, can sort of say like, I get it that you think that you need to talk about this, but for this paper, you actually don't need to. <laughs> it's too much, you know. Which sounds like great advice because usually what we try to do is like, we, I mean, we feel overwhelmed by the fact that we have to cut things and we don't know where. Yes. And it's yes. it's good to have a second opinion saying, this part, you can cut this part. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And it's... And is um, it, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. It's hard, right? It's the old kill your darlings thing. And it's also, again, I think you have to some carve out in some ways a different relationship to the work because, again, an article is not a book. <laughs> and, um, again, you don't just like shrink it down. It's, it's a different beast. And so I think as much as you can have that understanding ahead of time, even if you're still learning how to do it, it's helpful um, because you can really kind of do one thing in an article. You, you can't really do seven. Hmm. <laughs> can't even really do three. You can do one. <laughs> <laughs> and is this like one of the, uh, is this one of the things that gets the early career researchers the most like i mean getting something out of there like I, i'm curious like what yeah. is the biggest reason for rejection for instance for um, especially phds or recent phds it depends at which point the rejection <laughs> comes you know desk mm. reject is really you know quite often there are these hail mary things that people are sending and they're not anthropologists and you know mm. it's just really not suited at all to the publication um, 
I try as much as possible to err on the side of sending things out. But but if a piece is really, you know, not ready to be sent to reviewers, I'm not going to send something out only to have reviewers say, what the hell, hmm. <laughs> you know, um, that's a waste of everybody's time. Mm -hmm. It's not helpful to the author. And, you know, getting reviewers is pretty tough these days. And, you know, frankly, you know, one does not want to get a rep for, you know, calling on people um, with stuff that that really needs to be developed. Um, I've started doing some kind of, you know, it's a reject, but I try to give a few sentences to say why. And it's usually you're trying to do too much. <laughs> <laughs> you need to pick one thing. Um, and the other thing that, that happens quite a bit is that, um, they don't, they're not addressing the key thing that this journal requires, which is making a novel contribution to, or intervention with anthropological theory, method, or knowledge making. Mm -hmm. And quite often it's implicit in the piece, but it needs to be explicit. Hmm. What's the contribution? And, you know, in the final version, it may not need to say, and this is the contribution that I am making. But you, the reader cannot be guessing what it is. <laughs> and it has to be pretty explicit about anthropology, even if it's to say, I'm bringing in things from this other area of study or this other discipline because anthropology could benefit from it. Or this is revving up a discussion in anthropology that lacks this aspect. So it's not that it has to only cite anthropology. Um, but if the, if the contribution is too implicit, uh, that's not my job. <laughs> to make it clear, right? Um, and so it's it's often really a combination of those two things <laughs> that are at work. It's it's too it's attempting to do too much, and it's not clear about what the intervention is. <laughs> and until those get, you know, those are it's always a matter of degree because even things we send out for review, those are often the kinds of comments that come back, <laughs> you know, it needs to be pared back even more. It needs to really clarify the intervention. Um, and of course, you know, we all think we're being clear, right? But we also tend to fill in the blanks ourselves because mm -hmm. when we read our own writing, we know what we're talking about. And that's one of the benefits of having reviewers is they're not familiar with the work and they're not, they haven't been having that conversation for 10 years like you have. <laughs> they may be interlocutors in that conversation, but they probably haven't engaged with this actual piece of work. And mm -hmm. so they're gonna bring their own perspectives, again, as people do in a conversation and, um, 
you might have forgotten that that perspective was out there. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's just a really useful kind of check and, and, um, uh, kind of temperature, you know, temperature taking, I guess, to, mm -hmm. to again, get those responses. And I think, you know, on the whole, it, it may hurt, right? You know, criticism hurts, you know, and ouch. But I would say, you know, the vast majority of reviews are, are supportive, even when they're exacting, mm -hmm. you know, and, mm -hmm. um, you know, one thing that I do do is when there's a kind of gratuitous, nasty comment, uh, I redact those because they're not mm. helpful. So if somebody says something like, this looks like it was written by a fifth grader, that is <laughs> not a comment that is useful. And, and I will take that out. And then I'll let the author know there are some comments here that don't have any content that is useful <laughs> and I've redacted them. If you would like to see them, of course, I will send you the unredacted review, but you know, mm -hmm. those are the kinds of, you know, we all know, right. When you get some nasty comment on a teacher's evaluation, you just, you know, you, you ruminate on it for months Yes, uh, and you, people don't need, you know, there, there's no need to pass that kind of stuff on. Mm -hmm. And um, like, does this? It doesn't happen that this... often. I was going to say. Yes. It doesn't <laughs> happen that often. Um, but it occasionally somebody's feeling extra salty, you know, mm -hmm. um, it happens. And, and mm -hmm. so, um, but I would, you know, it's, it's maybe once, a month or something. I don't know. You okay, know okay. It's not common. Mm -hmm. um, and usually it... reviewers say like, thank you for letting me engage with this interesting work, you <laughs> know, and, and they'll, they'll say overtly, right. I'm offering these comments to support, you know, um, the development of, of these ideas, even if, you know, sometimes they've recommended to me reject, <laughs> you know, and, and, but the comments themselves don't often, usually don't, don't, uh, sort of give away, <laughs> um, what the recommendation may have been unless, you know, and then very often they will say directly, I I'm enthusiastic about this piece and with revision, I think it will be publishable. Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. Um, so it's not like reviewer two is out there to get us. <laughs> <laughs> Not as much as you would think. Um, and, and I, I do know that, uh, other disciplines, you know, and I've certainly gotten reviews that, that made me tear my hair out. Um, but, but I find that what I see coming through from, from what we're doing is, you know, the majority by far are supportive and generous and engaged, which is mm -hmm. what you want. And again, often they're exacting, you know, um, but ex being exacting is different than being a jerk. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs>
And I mean, after the review process, like after the revisions, do the does the article usually go to the same reviewers or does the reviewer? Yeah. Change? So so I'll just back up a teeny bit. So you know, we'll have the article, we send it to reviewers, we we aim for three, and especially now, occasionally we just move it forward with two if something's been sitting for a while and we can't get that third reviewer. I don't want to hold the author up for something that's mm -hmm. not their fault. So we'll make a decision with two. Again, that decision is usually revise and resubmit. And so what I will do in my letter is really try to lay out a, a kind of roadmap. Um, here are the things and, and here's our, our, you know, here's what the reviewers are asking you to pay attention to. And then I add my own, you know, thoughts. Hmm. Um, uh, but also try to add my thoughts on strategies for getting it done. Um, oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I that's the part I really enjoy. You know, I, yeah. I really enjoy work working with writers and, and again, seeing the piece develop. And so when you asked earlier about when something might get rejected, if that revision comes back and it's what I call surgical, which is sort of like they the person only paid attention to exactly the sentences you mentioned <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't rethink the piece because again most often it requires a fair amount of rethinking and you're not starting from zero but you really are um, very often it's like look the core concept needs to be more strongly identified and carried throughout the whole paper that involves rewriting comprehensively and you can't just like surgically go in and change a word here and there to do that usually surgical edits generally don't bode well okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so so um and again i'm very clear when i when i try to at least give a sense of the amount of work that needs to be done. Um, and so I'll say this needs to be comprehensively, you know, reimagined and restructured, <laughs> you know, or I might, you know, sometimes it is true, you know, it's like, this is actually in really good shape. This is on the edge of a minor revision. And so, you know, mostly pay attention to this section and that section. Mm -hmm. um, and I will also sometimes say, you know, there's, especially when there's disagreement between reviewers, right? You can't possibly do both things, do what makes sense to you, but explain how you made your choice, hmm. right? That's what's important in responding to reviewers is, not that you do everything they say, but that the choices you have made are thoughtful and responsive to what they're saying. And sometimes the answer is, no, I, I actually have really good reasons for doing what I'm doing. And sometimes really what's called for then is just putting that in the writing. I'm doing this because duh, 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 duh. Mm -hmm. and then the reader can't get confused and go off on their own little, you know, journey. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, but again, if, if it, if a, 
if a revision comes back that is too surgical, that means the author is really not in a place to fully respond to what's being asked of them. Hmm. And, you know, the reviewers are going to note that and, and then I'm not going to have confidence that sending them for another rev is, is going to create the movement that needs to happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, for this journal, sometimes again, AA is, you know, it's a Fort Fields journal, right? It's got a very broad um, remit. And so it's much broader than many other journals. So maybe an area journal is really a better fit or a subfield journal mm-hmm. is a better fit. Um, our, you know, this journal in some ways is kind of unusual. And so the broader the kind of call, the better off, you know, if you can like get some multiple subfields in there talking to each other, that's always like mm-hmm. a big plus. Um, and that doesn't mean we don't publish specialized things, but um, again, a, a kind of interest or call to breadth that's part of the article is is always going to be a strength for us, whereas it might not be for another journal. <laughs> so paying mm-hmm. attention to the that editorial or that uh, charge is important because different journals, you know, have different things that they're <laughs> focusing on. And, um, you know, it's our sort of responsibility as editors to keep that front and center mm-hmm. and i mean despite i mean in my mind at least like american anthropologist is a traditional anthropology journal but i w- i want to say that like uh recent like recent issues especially i think with your editorial guidance that there, there has been so many great experimental pieces mm-hmm. that i really enjoy reading And I mean, yeah. this also, yeah, I mean, this also makes me think of your book, My Life with Things, which is also mm. very experimental when it comes to what we think of ethnography. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. Like how you, yeah, how well, how you see the work of experiments in writing anthropology? Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, again, as someone who writes, um, I, I, um, like experimenting with writing and I'm inspired by other writers, uh, anthropological and not. Um, and, you know, one of the things um, that's great with, with editorship is, you know, they just sort of give you the journal and they're like, do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, you know, there, there are self-imposed limits there, but Uh, particularly, right, digital, you know, publishing isn't what it used to be, right? Paper is mm-hmm. dead, long live paper, et cetera, et cetera. I think we're kind of obligated to explore what are some of the potentials and, and, and possibilities in terms of what it means to publish or what it means to write, what anthropological knowledge making, you know, looks like, 
materially, technologically, textually, et cetera. Um, and I'm inspired quite a bit in that by working at a design school where that's, you know, what, what so many of my students do in, in various ways. Um, so it, it didn't make sense to me. It, it's funny because sometimes I'll, I'll get these things back saying like, well, I don't know if American anthropologist publishes this kind of thing. <laughs> and that's where, you know, editors uh, have personalities and, and uh, strengths and weaknesses and interests and, and et cetera. And, and, and at the same time, you know, journals have sort of, I don't know, legacies and um, reputations, I guess. And um, I don't think the journal loses anything by, you know, exploring some of these other areas more openly. And it's actually interesting because our, our second most well our our most cited research article last year was a piece by Oren Starn called on the Mis on the misery of writing in anthropology <laughs> which was one of those like i don't know if 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 american anthropologist publishes this pieces <laughs> and it turns out a lot of people wanted to read it <laughs> so and it's a wonderful piece right it's it's um autoethnographic and and um, Oren, you know, sort of opens up with these really raw descriptions of, you know, being on the floor of his office in a suicidal despair, which many of us have experienced, right? And, and um, at the same time, you know, he's, he's, ex he's a wonderfully successful, you know, you wouldn't look at him and think, oh, this guy has really had these kinds of struggles. Um, he's a wonderful writer, um, but suffered from, you know, really profound writer's block for many years. And so there's something really generous, you know, in, in his willingness to be that open about his own difficulties. And um, I think, again, it's something that other people being able to read about that makes you feel like, oh, you know, because writing's hard. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, he, you know, anyway, I think it's a wonderful piece. And, and um, you know, again, a lot of people have been reading it. So that's a sign to me that there's a hunger and a, mm -hmm. a, a, a desire for, for these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like uh, in a way, I, I, um, one of the things I see you do is also like uh, asking the authors to get in touch with you mm -hmm. if they want to think about ideas in a way that I really haven't seen other yeah. editors doing that often. And I'm sure that would also give someone the confidence to experiment and see if it's mm -hmm. if there's space for doing yeah. so. Like, can you tell us a bit about these conversations with p potential authors? Yeah, so I, I try to be sort of open and available, you know, within my, you know, the, the, the confines of, you know, 
capitalist space time. Um, so, but I, I do think that um, sometimes people have, particularly if something's unusual, uh, it's like, well, talk to us. And, you know, we'll, depending on what, a, you know, particularly if it's multimodal, I think, um, then we often will have a kind of initial discussion with one or more of the multimodal editors and whether that's a email discussion or, you know, a zoom discussion, just to sort of say, well, sure, this, this seems like an interesting idea. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Um, some of that's also because we run a website and the website is part of the overall journal project but it is not um, run by our publisher. So it's separate in that sense uh, and 100% under our control. And it's a little more nimble because it's a website so we can get stuff up there quickly. Um, and frankly, visually it looks better than stuff that comes out um, through the publisher because the publishing platform is, is what it is and it's yeah. not, designed um, to, to kind of highlight certain approaches to visual material, which is fine. It's good for what it does. Um, so sometimes we're trying to figure out, does this belong on the website or does it, you know, belong in the journal? Um, do we want to sort of try to straddle the two and have a little piece that connects out or, you know, and, and some of that often depends on what, what the author wants to do. Um, and also, I think, as, again, especially with multimodal stuff, it's helpful for people to, to get some input as they're sort of developing it rather than going down a path a really long way and then us saying, like, yeah, that's not going to work for us. You know? <laughs> Um, so in that way, um, even, even the way we review multimodal work is different. We tend to do what, what we call crit-based reviews, which comes from fine arts and design. Mm -hmm. And a crit is basically a critical conversation that's synchronous and everybody's in the room. Oh. And um, it works better for multimodal material because you can, um, you know, responding to a paper makes sense to kind of respond with text. I mean, conversations are also lovely. Um, but if you're looking at a, a kind of web-based thing that has multiple kinds of media or whatever, the the conversation format is, is I think, just more useful. And so we'll bring in outside people for those crits. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a equally rigorous process, but it's not anonymous and, um, it works more like a crit, you know, uh, so, okay, I mean, yeah, um, no. I was just going to say we're coming to the end of our time. Mm -hmm. Uh, any last advice before we close to the authors wanting to publish in American Anthropologist? You know, um, follow me on Twitter. <laughs> I'm always spouting off about one thing or another. 
Uh, I'm at lab spec F at Twitter. I'll add um, it to the yeah, episode notes. Put yeah. on the thing. And, um, you know, I, I'm thinking about other platforms, but just don't have time to. I, I dream about having TikTok abstracts. I think that would be really fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, um, I, again, I, try to do workshops pretty often if you ever anybody who ever wants me to come to their department you know personally or in zoom i'm happy to do that it's part of um again uh, um my my approach um and you know we're really i think it's it's meant to be a a you know it's it can't help but be an anxiety producing process, <laughs> but really we're, we're like on your side, you know, and we want what's best for the work. And even if what's best for the work is for it not to stay with American anthropologists, you know, we're, we're, um, we really just, want your work to be its best version of itself. That's sort of how we all think about that. Thank you so much, so much, Elizabeth Chin, for being with us today. Um, I hope we can keep this conversation going. Thank you.